0: Remember the first time you heard about Johnny Appleseed? (laughs) I do. The Disney cartoon. Now just to look at him, you'd say Johnny Appleseed never would make a pioneer. He was such a sawed-off, scrawny little fella. Of course, that didn't faze Johnny none. Shucks, he had his apple trees and the morning sun and the evening breeze. I learned all about this humble, kind-hearted man who spent his life doing what he loved wandering the forests and planting apple trees. All so people could have fresh, nutritious fruit and bake scrumptious pies. What a tale. I was so inspired that I ran right out and snatched an apple off the tree in my parents' backyard. It didn't look like a Disney apple. It was small and dark green and knobby. A mean little sucker. But I was too high on Johnny Appleseed to care. I took as big a bite as my missing front teeth allowed and spit it out immediately. I then spent ten minutes scraping that awful taste off my tongue. To quote Thoreau, that apple was sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge and to make a blue jay scream. I still recall my disappointment. But looking back, it makes sense. Because if you know a little bit about the DNA of apples, the odds of me getting a spitter like that were almost inevitable. Apples are a bizarre species biologically. And that was not the end of my disappointment. I soon learned that the Disney version of Johnny Appleseed was complete baloney. He's often revered as the patron saint of the American wilderness, our St. Francis. But to early Americans, the apple was not a symbol of wholesome living. Quite the opposite. It was a symbol of debauchery. Because the real legacy of Johnny Appleseed, what made him a legend, was not the fruit he delivered to farmers and ranchers. It was the booze. From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keene and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. John Chapman, the future Johnny Appleseed, was born in Massachusetts in 1774. But he felt stifled in the crowded Northeast, So in his early 20s, he led out for the Northwest Territory, land that's now Ohio through Minnesota. This once-native land had recently been taken over by the United States, who eagerly filled it with settlers. Most settlers were outdoorsmen, and there were plenty of curmudgeons and eccentrics among them. But even among those misfits, Johnny Appleseed stood out as a complete weirdo. The first thing you noticed was his clothes. Instead of shirts and trousers, he sometimes wore a ragged burlap sack, like a frontier toga. He also wore a cooking pot on his head as a hat. If you saw him today, you would cross the street to avoid him. Johnny never had a fixed address his whole adult life, not even a crude cabin. Sometimes he slept in hollow tree stumps, Other times he slung hammocks between trees. One time, needing to travel downriver during the winter, he hacked out an ice floe, pushed off from shore, and snoozed away while floating on that. Unlike most outdoorsmen, who hunted avidly, Johnny was a committed vegetarian and animal lover. There's one story of him stepping on a worm and getting so distraught that he threw away the offending shoe and forced himself to walk barefoot as punishment. Before long, he was going barefoot all the time, no matter the weather. He eventually developed feet so gnarly they looked like rhinoceros hides, gray and scaly and tough. He used to leave children wide-eyed by pressing hot coals into his soles or jabbing his feet with needles. Didn't hurt at all, he claimed. On rare occasions, Johnny took advantage of someone's hospitality and slept indoors in their cabin. But he quickly wore out his welcome by preaching incessantly. It was God this, heaven that. It sounded vaguely Christian, but was peppered with mystical mumbo-jumbo about spirits and nature. Most people just scratched their heads. But Johnny believed every word. Now, based on what I've said so far, his weird clothing, his rootlessness, his mysticism. What I'm going to say next probably sounds far fetched. But beyond all the other things Johnny Appleseed was, he was also, deep down, a shrewd entrepreneur. His hustle was real estate. Back then, American settlers were quickly colonizing the Northwest Territory, greedy for farmland. So Johnny would study a map and use his experience in the backwoods to predict where people would flock next, the up-and-coming real estate spots. And a few years before everyone else headed to those spots, he would go himself to plant apple trees. He transported the seeds in canoes, covering the seeds with damp moss to keep them moist. A single bushel basket held 300,000 seeds. Upon arriving, he would purchase some land or else squat somewhere. Then he would scatter the seeds. Not randomly, like they said in Disney, but in neat rows. At one time, he might have a dozen such nurseries going at different sites. Then he sat back and waited for settlers to arrive. And arrive they did. He had a real nose for picking the next big thing at which point Johnny would sell them saplings for 6.5 cents each. Given that the trees cost him nothing to grow and that he would sell them by the thousands, he always turned a fat profit. The American St. Francis was also a real estate mogul. People bought the apple trees for various reasons, like making windbreaks on farms. But one reason they did not buy apple trees was to eat the fruit. Because believe it or not, Most wild apples make for terrible eating. Scientists now understand why. In short, apples have extreme genetic variability. That is, apples reshuffle their DNA like crazy every generation. You can see this crazy variability in the original homeland of apples, Kazakhstan in Central Asia, where there are whole forests of apple trees. And the variety among those trees is astounding. All the trees there are the same species. But their apples don't look anything alike. Some apples look like olives. Some look like cherries. Some like ping-pong balls. Some aren't balls at all. They're pointy cones. The textures differ, too. Some are snappy like raw potatoes. Some are mealy like cornbread. Some are leathery. That variety extends to taste as well. Some taste like pears. Some like lemons. Some like nuts. Some apples are actually spicy. So yeah, there's a dizzying variety. Apples reshuffle their genes like this mostly as a defense against pests. The variation in shape and taste is a byproduct of that. But the end result is that it makes it hard to grow good apples. If you take an apple seed and plant it, you pretty much have no idea what's going to grow. It's just a random throw of the dice. Now, sometimes that genetic dice throw will make a good, tasty apple. It's similar to how, if you rolled a dozen dice, every once in a while you would get all sixes. Sometimes you do get lucky. But much more often, that random throw of the dice will produce a crappy apple. A spitter. (laughs) And again, that happens even from parents to offspring. A beautiful, tart, golden apple parent could lead to a shriveled, mealy, bitter red apple child. In nature, children never resemble their parents exactly, but apples take that to an extreme degree. In scientific terms, this variability is called heterozygosity. In colloquial terms, farmers say that apples don't come true. Now, some of you are probably saying, wait a second here. When I go to the grocery store, there are whole bins full of uniform apples. And they're uniform year after year. So what gives? If apples really don't come true, if they really are variable each generation, how do we get such uniform apples every year? Well, there is a reason for that. Albeit an uncomfortable one. Because all those apples you see in the grocery store They're all genetic clones. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in True Accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yes, the dirty secret of apple breeding is that all the apples in a grocery store are clones. Every Fuji, every Granny Smith, every Macintosh. All clones. Now, I know what you're thinking. Clones? Aren't clones evil? Well, no. Identical twins are clones, and they're not evil. I mean, yes, there were those creepy twins from The Shining. Come play with us, Danny. But generally speaking, twins are not evil. Scientifically, being a clone just means you have the same DNA. So with apples, any Fuji you pick up in the grocery store will have the same DNA as all of the other Fujis. Same with Granny Smiths or Macintoshes or whatever. Any one of them has the same DNA as all the others of that variety. Remember that the next time you wander through the fruit section of the store, you are surrounded by clones. But those clones were not created in a lab. Instead, farmers use a technique called grafting. To see how grafting works, let's take Baldwin apples as an example. Long ago, one lucky tree rolled the genetic dice perfectly and came up with a Baldwin, a real winner. But the farmer knew that if he planted the Baldwin seeds, he would almost certainly get a spitter. So he took a twig from the special Baldwin tree and carved a notch into another not-so-special apple tree. Then he wedged the twig into that notch. Eventually, the twig fused onto the new tree and grew into a branch. Later, that branch started producing Baldwin fruits of its own. And voila, he had cloned fruit from one tree to another. After repeating that a thousand times, he had an orchard of clones. And he didn't need a lab to do it. Now, notice that this technique would not work with animals. If you grafted a tasty hunk from one cow onto a second cow, (laughs) the second cow would not turn into a franken cow with cloned meat flanks. It would reject the transplant. But plants are different. You can graft and fuse them and produce all the clones you want. And at this point, finally, we can circle back to Johnny Appleseed. Again, apples do not come true. So if the parents have tasty fruit, the offspring might have bitter, terrible fruit. So in planting mounds of apple seeds, Johnny was growing thousands of trees with spitters and selling them to people. So was he just a huckster, ripping people off? No. People back then didn't care about sourness or bitterness because they had no intention of eating apples. They were using apples to make booze. Making booze from apples was shockingly easy. First, you gathered your spitters and let them get mushy. Then you put them in a press and squeezed out the juice. If you let that juice sit in buckets, wild yeast would ferment it. Before long, you would have hard cider, roughly half as strong as wine. Farmers produced even stronger liquor by leaving it outside in the winter to freeze. Cider contains both water and alcohol. Below 32 degrees, the water freezes into ice. Alcohol, meanwhile, freezes at far lower temperatures, 174 degrees below zero. So after a bitterly cold night, the cider in the bucket would separate into two phases, an ice phase, which was mostly water, and a liquid phase, which was mostly alcohol. Chip away the ice, and voila, concentrated liquor. People called it Applejack. It could reach 66 proof, packing quite a punch. Overall, then, that's why farmers eagerly bought Johnny Appleseed's trees, to make liquor. As others have pointed out, Johnny Appleseed was less an American St. Francis and more an American Dionysius, the Greek god of wine. So then how did this liquor pusher get transformed into a Disney folk hero? And more importantly, how did apples themselves transform into a symbol for wholesome living? In a word, prohibition. As stupid as prohibition was, Americans did drink staggering amounts of liquor in the 1800s. Adults averaged, averaged, 90 bottles of 80-proof liquor every year. That's 1.7 bottles per week. Even children drank hard cider. And it was not just ruffians. John Adams guzzled a glass of cider every morning. James Madison polished off a pint of whiskey daily. Given all this imbibing, prohibitionists saw apples as part of the problem. Apples enabled liquor, and apples were therefore evil, akin to the apple in the Garden of Eden, or the poisoned apple of Snow White. So when prohibition finally took hold and liquor production stopped, U.S. apple orchards faced a crisis. How would they make money now? The answer was to rebrand apples, to make them seem healthy and nutritious. The whole thing about an apple a day keeping the doctor away? It was a marketing slogan. But for this marketing to succeed, apples suddenly had to taste good. No more spitters. So orchard owners started scouring their trees for any halfway tasty variety. This search for tasty apples intensified after a few varieties took off and made their owners millions. It was a pomological gold rush. And as more and more winners emerged and began to fill the shelves of grocery stores, the rebranding took hold in people's minds. A new generation arose who thought of apples not as potential liquor, but as wholesome snacks. Overall, then, our view of apples today is a weird combination of marketing ploys and get-rich-quick schemes, two things that are as American as, well, apple pie. Now, I did this Johnny Appleseed story today because it's October, and apples are a fall fruit. But there are other notable fall fruits with fascinating science behind them as well, like giant pumpkins so I put together a bonus episode at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. Some giant pumpkins weigh as much as automobiles and are big enough for Cinderella's carriage. Really. And while I cannot vouch for the accuracy of this, I did hear one story about a pumpkin so big that when someone took a photograph of it, the picture alone weighed seven pounds. All that and more at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. I'll finish the apple story with this. Beyond the booze and the get-rich-quick schemes, apples appealed to Americans for another reason. Americans like to think of ourselves as rugged individualists. And in the 1800s, apples played nicely into that idea. Unlike many crops, the trees did not need special care. No plowing, no weeding, no coddling. You just let them go, and they flourished rugged individuals. Lately, however, things are different. I hope I've disabused you of the idea that clones are evil. But that's not to say that clones are always good, especially in agriculture. In terms of evolution, there's a reason wild apples show such extreme variability. Because again, variability helps them keep ahead of pests. By reshuffling their genes over and over, apples develop new defense systems that make it hard for pests to kill them. Because even if a pest evades all the natural defenses of one wild apple, the pest cannot kill the next tree over because that tree is so genetically different. At least, that's the way things used to be. Apples in orchard nowadays are mostly clones, genetically identical. So if a pest unlocks a way to destroy the fruit of one apple variety, it can now destroy every single identical apple in the orchard. In other words, while apples are now genetically frozen, bugs and fungi keep evolving. And over the decades, they've gotten very good at destroying apples. As a result, apples now require tons of pesticides, or else they would get wiped out. Back in Johnny Appleseed's day, these trees were considered rugged individualists. Now they're more like weak conformists entirely dependent on human intervention to live. The technique for grafting trees did exist in Johnny Appleseed's day. It's old technology. But grafting didn't jive with his mystical views of nature. He, in fact, called grafting wicked and declared that God only can improve the apple. Because to Johnny Appleseed, there was beauty in imperfect apples. Sure, you got some spitters. But wild apples were healthier and hardier overall. And if the imperfections did get to be too much, well, there was a solution for that, too. Just alchemize them into booze and have a nice, long drink. After that, life's imperfections didn't seem so bad. This is the Disappearing Spoon podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast, and on their website, distillations.org. You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com. You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event. If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. It costs as little as seven cents per day. You can also get bonus episodes and signed books. Please spread the word to others as well. And subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keen. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr, Rigoberto Hernandez, and Padmini Ragunov.